Hello and welcome to University Challenge with me, your host, Tony Kent. Now, how do you go from a career at sea to riding the crest of the technology wave all the way to the cloud? And how do you go from setting your sights on the top job to carving a path that will get you there? Our guest today is John Noakes, and in our interview, he shares his career story, which includes setting off to sea aged just 16, becoming a master mariner by the age of 26, charting a whole new course in IT hardware as an IBM sales apprentice age 30, switching into software as a specialist at Microsoft, exploring the world of ISV and software development, and creating a new chapter in cloud in his 60s at AWS. John's story is one of clarity and focus, of aiming high and hard work, and the power of a curious mind to sustain your career. I know you're going to love this. Hi, John. Hi, Tony. Good to see you. Good to see, good to see you. Um, now, we know each other, we've worked together, but for the listeners today and the listeners to come, could you please share your name and what it is that you do for a living today? Yes, of course. My name is John Knooks, and I work for Amazon Web Services as a partner development specialist today. Lovely. Okay. Now, I wonder what it was you wanted to be when you grew up. So we're going to go back in time a little bit to ask what your memories of secondary school are. Yeah, right. So uh, secondary school. So... um, I was at secondary school back in the day when they still had the 11 plus. So um, I kind of had that half pass in the in the 11 plus because you either went, there was three different streams where I lived. You, you went to what was then called secondary modern mm-hmm. or technical college or a grammar school. And I passed my 11 plus to go to a technical college. Uh, so obviously that was at the age of 11. And when I think about those um those five years I was at secondary school because I left when I was 16. Mm-hmm. Um, the first year was really a case of understanding what planet I landed on. It was completely different to what I'd experienced before, as with most people, I guess, coming from junior school. But I quickly used the experiences I'd gained in that first year to understand, because it was a technical high school, a lot of the subject matter was a little bit more sort of science-oriented, technically oriented, and I started to get to grips with that. And, uh, yeah, it was quite interesting. You know, there's still the reading, writing, arithmetic stuff that was going on. But my memories of secondary school were, during those five years, it was a case of understanding... Uh, how my career might map out. I didn't even use the word career back then. You know, what did that mean? What sort of job do you want to do, John? So, yeah, I think I didn't really start focusing on that until the third or fourth year. So when I was about 14 years old, I I knew what I was going to do. Yeah, and that really shaped uh, the rest of the time leading up to my uh, O-levels, the GCSEs these days. But back then it was GCE O-levels. So you knew what you wanted to do, right? Yeah. Which was what? I, yeah, I knew uh, from the age of 14, really, that I was going to go to sea. I had yeah. the calling. You know, a lot of people do talk about that and say, well, is it a natural is it a natural thing that you just know you're going to have to do? And in my case, it probably was. You know, I was a third-generation seafarer in my family, mm-hmm. and I didn't need any 
convincing, you know. I, I knew that by about 14 years old that that's the path that I wanted to follow. Didn't quite know what job I wanted to do, but mm-hmm. the initial sort of destination, if you will, was chosen in my head. You're going to go right. to see John. And I started reading a lot about the opportunities and then researching uh, mm-hmm. how I could go to see. At that point, I didn't know whether I would be going to see as an officer or a rating I didn't know if I was going to be targeting the military with the Royal Navy or commercial world with the Merchant Navy. That came over the following couple of years. So um, if you're third generation, so dad and granddad. That's yeah? right. That's right. Because um, you never know. Could have been your mum and your grandma. <laughs> yeah, it was my uh, my father and my grandfather <laughs> were both at sea. Yeah, yeah. Um, so did they expect that, that you would? Was... Um, not really. I mean, my father, my father at the time was a police officer. He's retired now, but uh, he was a police officer. So there was a level of, uh, I suppose, uh, discipline and uniformity in the house. Mm. And uh, I'm the eldest of four children. So, you know, it was, yeah, I talked to my dad about it, but he didn't push me or he didn't say, hey, John, this is, this is where, this is the direction you need to head in. It was none of that. Um, okay. So yeah, the, the subject of the sea wasn't really all prevalent in our household, right? It was something that was in the background, and I just used my natural curiosity, which I still retain to this day, to mm. investigate it and think, well, what could this offer me? And all the usual things were coming out. You know, if anyone's looked at that subject, they're going to think about the travel, the exploration, the going to various parts of the world, and experience in different cultures, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, but then again, if I do that, how do I know I'm not going to be seasick, right? <laughs> so well, there was all that yeah. side of it as well. Um, so you said, I'm going to go to sea. Um, how did that inform your choices of what GCs or O-levels or O-levels you were going to do? Yeah, I, um, I quickly realized that the path I wanted to follow was to be an officer cadet in, mm-hmm. in as a navigating officer. So from the age of 14 up to 15, I was doing a lot of research into shipping companies that were um, recruiting cadets to do that yeah. apprenticeship. And I knew from that that the subject I would have to be able to pass all levels of grade C or above were maths, physics, and English. Yeah. So that determined where my studies studies went and uh, I followed that path and uh, I had to do I had to do my physics all level twice I failed it the first time mm-hmm. but in a way that was a good thing because it taught me to uh, dig deeper and say John don't give up you've got to go back to this and I did yeah. and I got it the second time and there were the entry requirements to be uh, uh, accepted as a cadet wow um it's like it's funny it's, it's that thing of if you know you know so for you it was yeah, like you say yeah. no you just knew yeah I um what was the kind of guidance or attitude at your school because it was as you say you could leave school at 16 and enter the workplace um was there any expectation or guidance from the school when you said to them these are my plans this is what i want to do uh, yes and no. The I'll do with I'll deal with the no first because when I went yeah. to the careers officer and I said yeah. oh, I want to go to sea, he um, 
he then started looking at his shoes, I suppose, and thinking, oh, what do I do here? I don't think anyone's <laughs> ever asked me that before. What oh. have we got in the careers office yeah. in terms of documentation, research, background information that I can help this pupil yeah. with? Yeah. Uh, he didn't have anything to hand, but yeah. to his credit, he went away and got something. And the following week, I had a set of prospectuses and, you know, just understanding what, what that was all about. So that was the no bit. The yes bit was once once that had been solidified, if you will, the school were very supportive, you know. And actually, some of my fellow pupils, mm. uh, I had a couple, of, a couple of guys that I was at school with that ended up going to see as well as engineering cadets mm. rather than navigating. But nevertheless... The destination was similar, so we we kind of teamed up and had a, a common a common denominator of going to sea, you know. So uh, yeah, that was the way that worked, really. Great. So you went. I take it, John. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Talk to me about that. What what happened? How does a how does a sixteen year old <laughs> go right? I've finished secondary education. And now I'm going to go to sea. Yeah, yeah. So it was a massive moment, you know, and in terms of life-changing event, I guess. You know, if you think about that, I was 16 years and three months old, and my parents took me down to join my first ship in Middlesbrough. It was a rusty old 18,280-ton iron ore carrier on charter yeah. to British Steel when British had a steel industry, <laughs> bringing iron ore from various parts of the world into the UK to British steel plants. And when I was standing on the dockside watching this vessel come in, yeah, of course I was nervous. My parents were nervous. I was filled with trepidation. Like, yeah. This is real. This is real. Yeah. You know, I'm going to step onto this vessel and that's yeah. it. I'm off. So it really wow. was, it really was a, a big moment. And of course, I would be I would be stupid, and uh, if I was to deny that I got homesick, of course I did. Anyone would, mm -hmm. but it was quickly usurped by the busyness, the activity, the program of learning that I had to follow. Because before I stepped on that vessel, I had a two week induction period at college, right. uh, at a marine college, to kind of just set the expectations. Right, so it worked out all right in the end. But uh, that first that first voyage, you know, when we left we left Teesside, Redcar INR terminal, and we went off to uh, a port in West Africa in Mauritania called Nuadibu, and I'm thinking, blimey, I've never been out the country before, and here we are, we're going to Africa. Whoa, wow. <laughs> what's that going to be like? So, yeah, it was the start of a 14-year adventure, really. Well, I take it you did come home. <laughs> you came oh, back yes, to UK yes, shores yes. in those yeah. 14 years. <laughs> yes, exactly. Each each trip was somewhere between four and eight months away. Uh, yeah. My longest trip was eight months, but most of them were four or five months away. Uh, right. And it's still quite a long time, right? <laughs> it is. It is. And what sort of springs to mind for me is that, I have an understanding, but not a, a deep understanding. So kids I went to school with joined the armed forces. Yeah. And there was, you know, a huge training induction period that goes on for a matter of months. But you are generally fairly close to home-ish. When you get on a boat and go to sea for four months... I don't think if you say I'm not cut out for this, they could send you home, could they? Yeah, that's right. It's, you, you, you're committed, you know. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and I, and I think it's interesting because what made it a little bit more um, 
understandable for me, even at that young age, was I was starting a four-year apprenticeship. So okay. I signed indentures, apprenticeships, yeah. apprentices indentures, which my father had to sign because I was under 18. Yeah. And, you know, that meant that I was staring into the, uh, into the mouth of a four-year structured learning program yeah. with some time at college, some time at sea, so a sandwich course in real respects, uh, culminating after four years yeah. in the achievement of a second mate certificate, a foreign-going second mate certificate from, from the Department of Trade and Industry, as it was then, the uh, right. Maritime and Coast Guard Agency, as it is now. So, you know, that, that, was, that was what I was heading for. It was a formal, internationally recognised qualification that could be used anywhere in the world. Yeah. Um, what did you plan to do with that once you had it? And what did you do with it once you had it? Now, that was really the first step on the journey mm -hmm. to become a ship's master, a captain. So in that industry, in that uh, career path, there are three professional qualifications to gain. Second mate certificate, then you move on to first mates, and then you move on to masters. And it's not like you can do them just the next week after you've got one, you then have to have qualifying sea time and then some more study time at college. So the studying goes on. Uh, but I knew that when I set out on that path that I wanted to get a master's ticket as quickly as possible. And the fastest, mm. the fastest time, the minimum time you need to do to get a master's ticket is 10 years. And I did it in 10 years. So wow. I gained my master's ticket at 26, having gone to see it 16. And you can't do it any quicker. That's the youngest you could possibly get it. In fact, you wouldn't get that now because nobody goes to see it 16. So it would be no. 28, 29 now. Right. So I knew, I knew when I started that that was a, a goal, an ambition, a target. Yeah. 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 And that's what I did. Um. So explain... For those of us that don't know, well, you know, you've got your masters, so you can be a ship's, you're a ship's captain. You could be qualified to be a ship's captain. That's right. Um, in the commercial kind of shipping industry, mm -hmm. what does that mean? What so you've got, you've got your masters. What are you then in charge of, responsible for? What's the kind of stuff that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, the master of the ship is in charge of the ship, right? And all its crew, all its contents, the cargo. You are responsible. You know, the book stops here, to use a common phrase, I suppose. Um, but, it, I mean, there are so many disciplines and so many activities that make up that role. You've got mm. everything from, you know, crew management, you've got watchkeeping officers, you've got the safety of the vessel, you've got stability, ship construction, business and law, medical, signalling, right. the, the list goes on. I mean, if you think about it, Tony, you know, you could be on a vessel in the middle of anywhere and you think, well, yeah. it's not. It's a little bit different now because technology's advanced, but back then, yeah. you know, it's not like I could pick up a satellite phone and just get someone to um, come and rendezvous with me. You kind of got to get on with it. You got to get on with it, you know. And it's, you can get an app for that now. <laughs> yeah, you can. But I mean, in, in back when I was at sea, that was way, way before that that technology. So yeah. It just kind of, it blows my mind that at 26, mm. you know, some people might just be doing their master's at uni. Exactly, exactly. And you say, what have you had to look after? Well. That's it. Yeah, and it's really interesting because, you know, the, first, the very first time I got a command, my first ship that I was captain of, yeah. I was the youngest person on that vessel. Wow. Right. 
Yeah. And, you know, when you've had an experience like that, you think, blimey, uh, there is no way. There is no way that I knew more and had more experience than the other officers mm -hmm. and crew. They had way more experience than me. However, mm -hmm. the opportunity to learn from them and to retain the responsible position to be in charge and mm -hmm. issue instructions if they were necessary, yeah, it's two-way traffic, and I've retained that approach right up until today, you know, learning from others as well as teaching others. Mm. Um, and I'll have to find it because I can't remember, but there is something about there's a guy that used to, he was captain of a submarine, teaches about leadership and letting people be responsible for themselves rather yeah. than dictating orders. Exactly. Um Wow. Uh, so you've kind of answered my next question a little bit, but what sprung to mind for me was, oh, there's so much. Um, how how do you, I don't like the term humble, but, you know, when you've been in, uh, when you've captained, been responsible for a ship at the age of 26 and all the things that that entails, how do you keep yourself grounded um, and not get carried away with, I guess the excitement of having that level of responsibility. Yeah, I think um, it's an interesting question, Tony, and I would answer it in a number of ways. First of all, when you're in that position and you're doing what you need to do, there is so much going on. It's mm. like being in charge of a floating factory, right? Mm. There's lots of things happening at the same time. You never get time to rest on your laurels and think, yeah, I'm the boss. I'm going to sit in my cabin with my feet up and everyone will come to me. It's not like <laughs> yeah. that at all. You've got, to, mm. you've got to get on with it. And I think what helped me was during that period, so I had four years command experience between 26 and 30 and then came ashore. But during that period, my time was spent in the offshore oil industry. So the vessels that I was in charge of were quite specialized vessels in a very specific industry. Now that's a fast moving, mm. that it really is a floating factory environment, right? Because there's lots of things happening and the different types of specialized vessels that I was working on gave me the opportunity to learn even more. You know, a dive support vessel is different from an anchor handling tug and an anchor handling tug is different from a supply boat and a supply boat is different from a remote operated vehicle uh, vessel that's putting submarines under the water to check oil pipelines, right? There's, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Mm. Um, and I learned a lot. So I didn't get time to sit back and think, yeah, I'm the boss. Yeah, you might be the boss, but there's a day job to be done. You my, yeah. my hands were still black at the end of the day from hard work. Yeah. My, you know, I working boots were dirty. My hard yeah. hat was covered in scars. Yeah, you, you had to get on with it. Yeah. Wow. Um, so where do you go from there? Four years command experience, you go ashore, and then what happens? Yeah, and again, you know, just like the decision I took from school to go to sea, I took another life-changing decision at uh, around about the age of 29, and it, it was solidified when I woke up on the morning of my 30th birthday, I was in Mexico at the time on a on a, on a vessel and uh, on an oil field in Mexico. And I thought, blimey, John, you're 30. What are you going to do now? The end of the world is nigh, you know. <laughs> you've, crossed, <laughs> you've crossed the Rubicon. Yeah. The age now begins with a three. What are you going to do? Yeah. And, I, and then I thought long and hard about it and said, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to investigate leaving the sea and starting a completely different career. Mm -hmm. A lot of seafarers, when they leave the sea, will go into a shore-based maritime yeah. role like mm -hmm. a superintendent or something i didn't want to do that i thought you know i'm still young enough to have a mm -hmm. career change 
and that was a, another big moment, right? And I think you'll probably know the stats better than me, Tony, but there are an increasing number of people who undertake at least one, if not two, career changes through their working life. Mm. But back then, you know, it was still quite an unusual move. So I yeah. went about it in a structured way and engaged the services of a career consultancy, which back mm -hmm. then was quite unusual. Nowadays, I don't know what you'd call that kind of org, but, but mm -hmm. yeah, and 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 that was that was very very insightful for me, mm -hmm. and it was basically like leaving school all over again. Yeah, but it really helped. And how how did that shape your thinking? It was really interesting because I remember it really vividly you know it could be yesterday in my mind really but when I had the first meeting with the consultant that was going to advise me and guide me and prepare me for a work for an opportunity to work in Civvy Street you might say mm. um, I always remember what he did he sat down at the table with me and he gave me a piece of paper and he said John I'd like you to write on this piece of paper all of the skills attributes and qualities you think you utilize as a ship's master right I said, okay, so I started writing and I filled the page one column deep. And he turned around, he had to look at it. He says, right, I'm going to turn the paper over and now I am going to write on the other side of the paper all of the skills, qualities and attributes I think you utilize as a ship's master that could be used ashore. Yeah. And he filled the page three columns deep. Wow. And, the dif and the difference between what he did and what I did was he was able to put my very specific nautical and mar maritime language into commercial language. Mm. And he said, I'm going to teach you how to do that over the next two or three months. Right. And during that period, he was he was putting me forward for mock interviews, you know, just to get used to the idea of doing things that we all know now to be necessary, but I'd never experienced before. It really was like leaving school again. Mm -hmm. And during that period, we did um, some research to try and identify which industries would be most relevant to my skill set to then grow a new career. And mm -hmm. the technology industry, what we'd now call IT, uh, was, was flagged as uh, a, a very a very appropriate industry, and uh, that's where it started. And what was your first IT role then, John? So again, I was starting my second apprenticeship in my life. Really, well, right. it, wasn't really it wasn't really called an apprenticeship, but I joined. I joined IBM as a trainee salesman for <laughs> a, a mid mid range systems. So there yeah. I was at the age of thirty, yeah. joining joining this year's intake of. Yeah. IBM recruits to teach them how to sell computers, right? Yeah. And I thought, blimey, this is – and again, you know, the, the, the interview process was pretty rigorous, but I got through yeah. that. And, and during that period, I found myself joining IBM with um, a collection of other candidates, other new starters, and I was – in contrast to my earlier story about being the youngest person on the ship, I was now the oldest person in that group yeah. because most of the other candidates, in fact, all of them, were pretty fresh out of university, early 20s, and there was me, 30 years old, an ex-ship's captain. They're going, what? How does this work? How did this guy get here? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's where it started. It's fascinating to, to kind of see that, like you say, on the one hand, mm. uh, you'd be a ship's captain and someone's going, okay he's a bit fresh <laughs> yes um, exactly and, yeah and it's do you know what? i'm really um i've heard over the years when people have been asked to 
kind of vote for? What's your, you know, what do you think is the best in class sales um, academy, sales school, sales training? It, people have always said IBM. Um, and it's kind of seen or it was seen as an exemplar within the industry mm. for, for sales training. What was your experience of that? Yes, I'd uh, I'd fully agree with that sentiment, Tony. And I've heard the I've heard the uh, the story a number of times. And I think mm. you know between IBM and Xerox, the, those two organisations were held in very high regard as a gold mm. standard. In uh, I mean, yeah, we call it sales training, but it was really about life training. You know, about understanding how to deal with people, understanding how to have conversations. Mm. And what it taught me was again. Back to my maritime period, I suppose, there was a structure, mm. a structure to how to um, have a conversation, establish rapport, open the opportunity, you know, drive yeah. drive the demand or the desire for something that you knew you had mm. that the customer didn't yet have but might express an interest in. So because IBM were very structured that way, that training program mm. lasted a full year. So my first year at IBM was really in a trainee mode. And I don't yeah. know of any technology company then or now that would take the risk of saying, you know what, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna we're gonna write off that first year in productivity terms for that candidate yeah. because we need to teach them. And yeah. that was time really well spent in a formal structured training class environment. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so it, it taught me a lot. And do you think your um, uh, experience of kind of maritime technology gave you an advantage? I don't know if it's an advantage, but it certainly gave me relevance because, you know, having dealt with the things I used to deal with, the the people side of it was very important because mm. uh, one of the things I had to be able to do when I was at sea was, if you think about it, when an officer changes, when an officer goes home and a new officer arrives on the vessel, mm. then the person in charge, the master, has to make a pretty quick decision on mm. the trust that's necessary to say, while I'm in bed asleep, that watchkeeping officer is in charge of this vessel at half past two in the morning. Yeah, I've got to make a really quick decision on mm. whether I trust that person. So you look at it from that side. The other mm. side of looking at it is to say... Well, actually, the vessels that I was experienced in in my last two or three years at sea were pretty high technology vessels. Yeah. So my my appreciation and understanding and exposure to technology was already there, and I was able to relate that into the world of at the time, you know, selling mid mid range and mainframe systems at mm. IBM. Which, um, yeah, yeah, that was then. This is now, right? <laughs> How did you find it going from having responsibility for systems and, and people mm -hmm. to being an individual contributor, yeah. as it gets called? How was that? Yeah, it was uh, it was pretty interesting. It was something I'd not experienced before because I'd been on the rise all of those years. You know, each yeah. each step was going to be a better one, a bigger one, a more senior one, probably with yeah. more money. Yeah. And here I was at the bottom of the ladder again. But you know what? It didn't bother me, and it still doesn't bother me today. I have, mm. have had managerial roles in my 36 years tech career, but mm. I'm not one of those people who has to be a manager, right? I, I yeah. enjoy being an individual contributor. And, uh, yeah, I found it uh, a really good grounding mm. to be able to work with colleagues 
who mm. some of whom I'm still in touch with today, all those years later, which is usually a good reference point, yeah. who were a bit younger than me and would ask me questions and I'd ask them questions. And yeah, so it, it never really entered my head that, yeah, I want to be the boss. I want to be yeah. the boss of IBM, you know, I want to be the director. <laughs> no, I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not really into titles and seniority in that respect. Mm. And so IBM, that's a big, you know, for entering the tech industry, you know, I think I'll just start at the top, mm. the vendor, vendor mm. stack. Where did you go after IBM? Where did that lead you? So I was 10 years at IBM and, uh, you know, it, it kind of reached its natural um, uh, conclusion for me. And uh, I decided that obviously I wanted to stay in technology sector and mm -hmm. started thinking about where else would be appropriate. And uh, the world of software began to uh, interest me and excite me as it still does today. And the word Microsoft started coming up on the, uh, on the agenda. I thought, well, again, a bit like the IBM, you know, the phrase you've just used, if you're going to go into that, you might as well start at the top. And at back yeah. then, yeah, IBM were the pinnacle of hardware mm. engineering. And likewise with Microsoft on the software side. So I started researching how I might get into Microsoft. And if I did, what sort of role would I do? And I did manage to succeed with that and joined Microsoft. And uh, we're talking now, um, you know, in, in 90, look, where was it? 1998, so the late 90s. Yeah. And um, yeah, a different world then to what it is now. But what I enjoyed about that was, again, starting from fresh again. It was another new beginning. Yeah. I had a lot to learn. Software, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I've never written any software. I've never been a developer. I never will be. But wouldn't you have to know about that to be successful in this business? Well, yeah. maybe not. Maybe there are other roles. And, of course, with the sales discipline from IBM, that helped me a lot. And mm -hmm. so I ended up moving from IBM to Microsoft, which was a, a baptis baptism of fire, you might say, a complete <laughs> contrast. Um, please tell me you didn't enter on an apprenticeship. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, yeah, that's a great question, though. I think after the two previous experiences, I can understand why you say that. No, no, I didn't. But um, yeah, I mean, moving from a, a very, a very sort of disciplined, mm. uh, structured environment like IBM, where it really was, you know, the blue suit, white shirt, mm. dark tie. Mm -hmm. highly polished shoes into a far more casual environment mm -hmm. at Microsoft. Yeah, that was that was night and day, right? Mm -hmm. Management structures were flatter, decisions yeah. were made in a different way, etc. etc. So what, I was still what, learning. What did you what was your first role at Microsoft? I was um I was in the what was then the beginnings of the e-commerce world. So I was in an e-commerce team. Okay. Yeah. Um in the developer evangelism group, actually. So uh, that sounds a bit techy, but I didn't really need to know too much about that. I was learning that as I went. But yeah, it was all about the early days of e-commerce. So this is before the dot-com boom, right? People yeah. are starting to think, hey, can we use this internet thing to sell stuff online? Ooh, I don't know. Yeah. Ask Microsoft. They'll know. <laughs> well, you know yeah. what? We didn't really know. We were making it up as we went along. But it was, <laughs> it was happy times, right? I'm being a bit flippant there, but... It, yeah, it really was a degree of learning as you go. And I think um, so. My like, the, I remember the first time I mm. saw you at Microsoft because the organisation I worked for had been acquired, um, Great Plains, and mm. there was some kind of I think it was like a kind of welcome day. And you, and I don't know if you actually played the bass for us, 
or you showed a picture of you, but you were kind of chosen to welcome us in. And I'm trying to picture if you did create that with a guitar. I'd like to know about that. Yeah, I, uh, I think, uh, yeah, I do remember that. And I did. There was some guitar work going on there because uh, that music, as you can possibly see from behind me, music's a big part of my life. It's some of my mm -hmm. LP collection behind me. And, mm -hmm. and that's another important aspect, right? I mean, there's all this professional stuff and joining this company, yeah. joining that company, learning this stuff. Well, what do you do outside of work? So yeah. for me, keeping my feet on the ground by, you know, music is a very important part of my life, whether I'm listening to it or playing mm it. I'm not. I'm not a massively great guitarist, but I've always had a guitar since the age of 14, actually, and right. always just strummed along with it and tried to get on. But coming back to your point, yeah, I do remember things like that. And I think one of the things I took from that, because I did that sort of thing a number of times at Microsoft and at other places mm. since then, the key word that a lot of people will probably use it for me, and it's a word I enjoy, is evangelism. Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an yeah. evangelist, really. I yeah. enjoy I enjoy exciting people about something they didn't know they could get excited about. Yeah, that's yeah. what that's what makes me happy. And uh, the music's part of that, right? Yeah. Um, well, I'll ask, because I can see your records, and, and assuming that we put this on YouTube, other people will see how many, John? How many yeah, I've got uh, around about 1,000 LPs, so I'm a bit of a vinyl freak, I suppose. But, uh, nice. yeah, I've been collecting that over many years. So, yeah, I enjoy that. Nice. Um, and I think um, uh, it's something I might come back to it later. Um, how many years did you spend at Microsoft? I was at Microsoft for 15 years. Um, right. And uh, yeah, a lot of change over that period. Mm. A lot of things, a lot of different roles that I had. But that ro those yeah. roles, it was, you know, there was breadth as well as depth. And yeah, um, yeah but 15 years was, well, it, well, that's the longest I've ever worked for one organization right and, and i've kind of i made a note because i noticed that you said you know when you're 14 you're going right i want to go to see so i'm going to research <laughs> how to do it and then you've decided at like 29 right i want to get into the commercial world so i'm going to research how to do that with a career counselor you go to ibm and then you think i want to join the software world i'm going to research how i get into microsoft so um, there is that kind of theme all the way through of you being quite sort of decisive going okay right if I want to get there how do I make that happen um what did you do then after Microsoft what what did you come to a I want to go there so how do I make that happen no I didn't I I reached a different conclusion at that point mm -hmm. in my career Tony and, and um yeah, I don't think it's done me any harm so far. So what I what I basically <laughs> did was I decided that for the previous twenty five years, mm -hmm. I'd only worked for two organisations. Yeah. So I was like Mr. Corporate. Yeah, you mm -hmm. cut you down the middle, and it's either blue blood from IBM or a multicolored blood from Microsoft, and that's what yeah. you do. You're pre-programmed mm -hmm. to uh, regurgitate the corporate messaging from yeah. big companies like that. I thought, you know what? Yeah. I don't really want to do that for the rest of my life. Mm. I want to explore some other things, but still in the tech sector. Yeah. So I set out on a completely different type of journey, and I thought to myself, you know what? The the cloud is beginning to gain some momentum and interest. Mm -hmm. um, so this is, what, 10, 11 years ago, I guess. Um, and that looks like it's got a bright future to it. 
So what I'd like to do is experience technology companies that are not mainstream hardware manufacturers and are not mainstream software manufacturers, distributors, and 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 sales. I mm-hmm. want to do. I want to experience different sectors in the technology space. Mm-hmm. So I had a I had a period of um, sort of five six years working for a number of different companies, and I yeah. did that on purpose because. I wanted to experience the world of the ISV, the independent software vendor, yeah. the world of hosting. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to experience the world of resale, reselling in, mm-hmm. uh, in, 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 uh, in technology sales. Mm-hmm. And I did that by working for a, a variety of organizations. And over that period, I knew that the ultimate target was, you know what, a bit like going back to the earlier point, right? There's a theme here. If you're going to go for hardware, go for the big guys. Go mm. for IBM. If you're going to go for software, go for the big guys. Go for Microsoft. If you're going to go for the cloud, I want to come to Amazon. I want to work for Amazon Web Services. Mm. Now, I knew over that period of two, three years that I started researching it that that would not be an easy task. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I set about it in a with a proper plan, really. I didn't document yeah. it, but it was in my head all along. So when I did join Amazon Web Services, which is nearly four years ago now, it was with a background and an experience profile that I thought would be useful. And fortunately for me, it was useful because the company hired me. And here we are nearly four years later, and I'm now obviously approaching the twilight of my career and looking at retirement. And I I never get embarrassed or worried about saying that word. Mm. You know, um, in September this year, I'll have been working for 50 years nonstop. And Whoa. that's quite a long time. And it's actually long enough, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and on that point, you had a couple. It's funny because I think compared to <laughs> – I like to post on LinkedIn a lot – um, I would say you're a bit more selective, but a couple yeah. of your posts really stand out for me. That and one of them, I'm certain, you know, went viral around you talking about starting a new job mm. in your late fifties. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'd love for you to just talk about that a little bit because um, I don't think it's talked about enough, actually. <laughs> okay, yeah, I think as I approached um, my fifties and now sixties, of course. Um, different different worries, different concerns start to enter your head. Mm. What if I get made redundant from this company and where would I get my next job? How easy or difficult is it to be hired at that age? So those sorts of things started creeping into my uh, mindset, I suppose, and thinking, well, what are you going to do about it, John? Mm. What are you going to do about it? Because you can't just let that happen. You've got to yeah. stay on the front foot. So the way I started thinking about it was, First of all, as the even though even though I'm not going for a new job, but every individual part of my life, pretend that you are and keep your CV up to date, mm-hmm. and play your resume back to yourself. What would you look like in front of a potential hiring organization? Even though you had no intention of doing that or going for an interview, doing the role play, what would you look like? And for me, it was about breadth and depth of experience. There are two dimensions there. How wide have you done stuff and how deep have you done stuff? 
Mm. And where do those two things intersect? How do you, I, I ask myself the question, how do I help others and how do I learn from others? And in equal quantities, it's very easy for someone of my age and experience to say, yeah, yeah, yeah I know everything, of course, you can't tell me anything. And I've never, <laughs> I'd never say those words, right? But yeah. Some people do. And okay, it's everyone's, it's anyone's prerogative to do that if they want to. Mm -hmm. But I don't work like that. And I think, and you know, here I am now in my mid-60s and I work with some very young people in yeah. my current organization and I learn as much from them as they learn from me. And that's what's helped me help me go forward all the time. And it's mm -hmm. not about, yeah, what are the 10 things you need me to do for this job? Yeah, I've done nine of them. Mm -hmm. So one of the techniques I often use, and I still use it today, even though mm -hmm. I'm not looking for work, is when I look at job descriptions and advertisements for jobs, I will take that job description and I'll use a color code, you know, red, amber, green to say, and I'll look at every single line in that job description and say, be honest with yourself, John, can you do this? Have you done this? Is it red, amber, or green? And there's always a substantial level of red. And that mm -hmm. gives me an opportunity to say, right, how do I now go about learning about this? Mm. Great. Great tip. Versus I can't do it. Oh, well. Um, I love that idea of being on the front foot think because you know it's like you say it's a possibility these things can happen um so what are you what are you gonna do to mitigate gets if that does happen, how do you maintain some level of control of your own destiny and I think a lot of that Tony is about um asking yourself the question, how are you gonna show up at work today? Mm. what will you look like to others? Are you glass half empty or glass half full? And there are times in our life when we have to be both, but largely I'm glass half full. And, yeah. you know, just, just exuding that confidence, even if mm. you're not confident, yeah? transmitting an aura, transmitting mm. an air of confidence and ability is part of the job. And I always say mm. that, you know, when we're talking to anyone, if it's a, a customer, a partner, our own family, friends, you know, mm -hmm. transmitting that confidence and that um, that happiness, that's part of the job done, right? The detail will come mm -hmm. later. Would I <laughs> would I would I go over the top for this person? Yeah. Will yeah. he or she convince me that whatever they say, I'm going to do it? Yeah. yeah, and it's it's that it's that um, that attitude. I think you know, show up with a positive attitude every single day. Yeah. And I laugh about something every single day of my life. It's really important. So yeah, yeah those sorts of things, I suppose. It's a great point, though, because I think if we reflect on people we may have worked with or known throughout our career or our personal lives or whatever, it might be if someone says, "Oh, do you remember so and so?" Mm. and you say, "Yeah, I can't remember what they did, but they were either." a misery guts or yeah they were always optimistic helpful supportive people mm. they say people will remember how you made them feel yeah. or you did That's it. yeah um unless you did something really special um now you've got i know this because you told me got hang on four children yeah yes i have yeah you're one of four and you have four um <laughs> How how did your experiences inform how you advise your children 
if they asked for it in their own um, careers? Yeah, it's a great question. And uh, part of the answer was embedded in your question there when you said if they asked for it. That's where we we start, right? So, yeah, yeah, as my children were growing up, obviously I I was no longer in the seagoing career, so I was at home. Mm -hmm. So a a lot of them, obviously, coming to and from school, collecting them from school, all the things that parents do. But as they approached teenage years, just like when I approached teenage years, the conversations about career and exams and university and, you know, higher education start to Mm -hmm. appear. And one of the things that I made my children very clear about um, back back then is you do not do not treat higher education or university as a must-have. Mm. Do not treat it as, well, everyone's got to go there, haven't they? I read it in the newspapers. I see it online. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of young people going to university, and they all get a great education. Mm. Well, there is just as much value and I'm an example of that because I didn't go to university, just as much yeah. value to follow a professional path in a different direction. And actually what was quite interesting for me is that two of my children went to university and two didn't. Mm-hmm. And without going into too much detail, yeah. I want to share everything, but without yeah. going into too much detail, none of those two roads, those two paths, have caused any of my children any challenges. They've all mm-hmm. done very, very well the two that went to university and the two that didn't go to university. And that for me is testimony to the belief that, you know, understanding everyone's good at something. You just got to find it, find out what it is that you're good at. And if you find some things along the way that you're not good at, well, okay, cast them to one side, treat it as a learning, put it, put it to one side and move on. And Mm -hmm. all of my children took that attitude. And I'd like to think that, uh, some of the coaching, well, I call it coaching, I didn't call it coaching to them, but some of that advice, guidance, and gentle coaching, because, uh, you know, I, I wasn't going to be in any way, and I wouldn't be today if I had my time again, in any way heavy-handed about that. Mm. People have to find their own path, and giving a youngster the best start in life to help them determine that is what I was about and still am, still am about. And my wife and I are uh, very proud of the fact that we, hope we've done a good job with that and the testimony is how successful our children are these days so yeah i hope i think that whole question of well i'm gonna have to go to uni aren't i because all my mates are going and i always remember that one of my children did sort of play that back to me uh by saying oh all my mates are at uni and i'm not and does that mean i'm not as good as them stop right there no it doesn't mean you're not as Mm -hmm. good as them what it means is you've chosen a different career path you are building skills in alternative areas without academia being at the forefront, professional apprenticeships at the forefront. And mm. actually, you know, you will uh, you will not have the multi-year burden of a student debt to, yeah. to live with. So, yeah, I think um, it's horses for courses. And I suppose in my example, uh, two at uni and two not at uni is almost the perfect dichotomy, right? Yeah, it is. It is. Um so, and only tell me what you can tell me, John. Don't want to set the horses running. Um, <laughs> what's next? If if 
I'm sure you've got something, a decision in there somewhere. But what, what are you able to share? What's next? What you might like yeah, to I think um, it's a great question. A lot of people are asking me that these days, given uh, <laughs> given my and and you know, I, I'm not um, <laughs> I'm not backwards and coming forwards. I'm not frightened and I'm mm. not embarrassed about saying to people, hey, you know, I'm. I'm in the older part of my life now and I'm coming in the twilight of my career. So I am thinking about retirement. Of course I am. Who wouldn't be? And I think for me, there's a period of reflection. So there will be a period when I decide to stop work mm. where I don't do anything yeah. for a few months and mm. let all of that 50 years of professional blood sort of drain from my body, you know, the thing, you know, all that stuff that you used to remember, John, well, forget about it. Yeah. And then at some point during that transition, I suppose you could call it that, into uh, a life that is more focused on two things that are top of mind for me, mm -hmm. my health and mm -hmm. my family. Yeah. And both of those things are in good shape and I want them to remain in good shape. So that's what begins yeah. to be the priority. Mm -hmm. Work is great. Of course it mm -hmm. is. And I've had 50 years of it. Yeah, but so is life, and I know we often use in this and any industry these days that whole phrase of work-life balance is uh, a poignant phrase, and mm -hmm. everyone's got a view on it. Everyone's got a different experience of it. But as I approach the end of my working life, that seesaw will balance completely. Life, there's no work; it's life. But yeah. that that brings with it uh, another question, and that is to say, well, John, how are you going to deal with? just suddenly stopping after 50 years mm. it, your brain will need to be mm -hmm. kept topped up how are you going to stay uh, fulfilled how are you going to yeah. spend your time and yeah I am thinking about that now and it's not something where I don't want to share it too much on here but but one of the things I will do is uh, I am starting to jot down notes and think about I'm going to write a book so I'm going to write a book about my life and uh, Excellent. that will be uh, a great project to spend time on. Well, I fully expect to see it on <laughs> some like, sellers list somewhere because you will have researched this because if you're going to write a book, then you want to get it on all the shelves of all the bookshops. Of well, I'll, uh, I'll, um, I'll let you into the, 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 the current working title of my book will be... Mm -hmm. uh, from the waves to the clouds. <laughs> so, yeah, I, Love it. Uh, I'm thinking about that. And, and yeah, no, everyone's got a story to tell, right? It's just yeah, it's true. Uh, uh, how they want to tell it, how much detail you want to go to, and how more than that, you know, it's not about me. Oh, aren't I great? Look at all this stuff I've done. It's again, it's about inspiring others. What mm -hmm. could other people take from this? That could be me. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, I'm just really glad that you were able to spend a little bit of time sharing that story today. Um, if people want to kind of see your post, I guess they can follow you on LinkedIn, can't they? They can hang yes, out can. there. And, yes, yeah. I'm pretty easy to yeah. find on LinkedIn and people of a certain age yeah. will will know my name is the same as an old Blue Peter presenter, John Noakes. But yeah, there's not too many John Noakes on LinkedIn, but you will find me there. Lovely. Brilliant. Thank you so much, John. Well, thanks, Tony. I enjoyed uh, talking to you and uh, thank you for the questions and the opportunity. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the University Challenge. Now, did you know 
that we have got a playlist. Yes, we've got anthems where everyone who's been a guest on University Challenge put forward a song that they think epitomises their attitude to life. So head to the YouTube channel, which is at University Challenge, and check out the playlist there. You can also find more on Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Simply put in University Challenge, and if it doesn't come up, I need to work on my SEO. Thank you.